great to see you all. Welcome to Valley Church. How's everybody doing? Good? Awesome. Um, I'm happy to see all of you. Um, Tonight we're going to be back in the book of Matthew. We have been here forever and we will be here forever. So you can open to Matthew chapter 16. Um, It's another rather famous passage, I think. It's very short. We're going to be in chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. It's short. It's kind of in your face. So if you're hoping to leave here really happy and encouraged, maybe you will be, but maybe not. Um, We've likely all heard these words of Jesus either from here in Matthew or from one of the other gospels. But I want to just make sure that we allow the scriptures to do what they're supposed to do in our, in our minds and in our lives. Um, Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active. It is ancient, yes, but it is alive and it is effective in doing stuff in our life. It says that the word of God, living and active, it's like a really, really sharp sword that's able to pierce, cut through bone and like slice ligament from marrow. And it's, uh, it's supposed to pierce our hearts and our thoughts and our intentions. And, and it reads us and understands us better than maybe we even know ourselves. And this passage in Matthew is a great example of the ability of the word of God to pierce in a good way. It's more like a surgical scalpel with the intent to heal rather than a sword with the intent to harm. And so with that in mind, let's read Matthew 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word and for what it can and should do in our lives. And we just, I just ask that you would help Valley Church in this moment for this next half an hour to be humble under the word of God, that we would submit to the lordship of Jesus by submitting to this word here. Would you illuminate it for us, help us understand it, and help us see how we might be shaped by it as we attempt to follow you better. So we thank you, Jesus, for this church, for this family. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Before we dive into those five verses, I just want to kind of familiarize ourselves with the context. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Matthew, and um, I don't remember what I said last week, let alone like eight weeks ago in Matthew, so let's just all re-familiarize ourselves with the context. Earlier in chapter 16, Jesus has just asked his disciples who they think he is, um, or who people think he is. So he asked them earlier in chapter six, um, who do people say that I am? And the disciples respond with kind of the general gossip of the day about Jesus. And they're like, well, some people think that you're John the Baptist. Some people think that you are Elijah. Others think that you're one of the prophets. All of those options that the disciples give of what kind of the people think are like nice options. They are some type of like 
Jesus, that indicated that people thought Jesus was some kind of front runner to the Messiah or that he was somehow helping God kind of issue or get ready to bring the Messiah into the world. Even if they didn't think he was the Messiah, they thought he was a big deal and important. Jesus then asked his disciples, he's like, okay, so that's what other people think. But what do you guys think? Who do you guys think that I am? Um, and Peter responds in epic fashion and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus tells Peter, you are blessed for saying this and understanding this because this is something that God has actually revealed to you. It's a beautiful moment. Um, but then right after that, Jesus starts to tell his disciples what it means that he is the Messiah. So Jesus says, it, it tells us from time to time that Jesus would tell his disciples what it would mean, that he was the Messiah, that he was about to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Now this would have been really confusing for the disciples who had just kind of had this moment where they're like, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's gonna rescue us from Rome who is oppressing us. He's gonna come unite the people of God against their oppressors and help them overthrow these evil nations. Um, so the Messiah and the expectations of these disciples was that uh, he should have a place of honor among the chief priests and the elders and these really important, powerful people not suffer at their hands. And so Jesus goes on to say, I'm gonna suffer at their hands and I'm also going to be killed and then on the third day raised. Peter will have none of this. There's, he's like, there's no way that you, the son of man, the Messiah, or the rescuer of the people of God are gonna suffer shame and death at the hands of the people that you're coming to deliver. So Peter, in, in so many words, says, this is ridiculous, Jesus. I will never, ever let this happen to you. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, this is a satanic way of thinking. You're thinking about this like a sinful human with a broken mind and a broken understanding of the world would think about this. Um, this is in contrast to this beautiful way that Peter had acknowledged that, that Jesus was the Messiah as a way that God that had revealed it to him. And Peter kind of jumped out of that proper way of thinking and was just thinking according to his own mind. And he was like, Jesus, you can't, you can't die this shameful death. So this is the context. Jesus says to his disciples, who am I? Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you got it. Way to think about this the right way, the way that um, God would have you think about it. And then Jesus says, by the way, this means that uh, because I'm the Messiah, I'm gonna suffer shame and I'm gonna die in front of lots and lots of people. Peter's like, no way, never, I'll never let this happen. And Jesus is like, dude, what just happened? You were thinking about this right and now you're not thinking about it correctly. So Jesus established that the Messiah's role involved public shame and death. And then he continues with that thought process. It's related into our passage now into verse 24. It's not just about him, but it's about his disciples as well. In verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So Jesus has now just established this new criteria for becoming one of his students and for following him. Not only will the Messiah suffer shame from people and have to die at the hands of the most powerful people, but he says, if anyone wants to follow me, they also are gonna have to be willing to do the same. I think we should take a moment and remember that at this point in the story of Jesus and his disciples, 
uh, they didn't know that Jesus would be crucified. They didn't know that that would be the method of how he was executed. So when Jesus says, take up your cross to them, they weren't thinking about this as some like honor of dying the same way that Jesus died. They weren't thinking about the beautiful symbol that the cross has become for the sacrifice that Jesus made. When they heard take up your cross, they probably thought about like low-life, degenerate criminals who were forced to carry these wooden crosses on their backs to the place where it would be sunk into the ground so that they could be nailed to it, and there they would hang for days sometimes on these roads outside the cities, and it was a shameful, ugly, and cursed way for someone to die. And so when Jesus tells them, take up your cross, they're not thinking of the beauty of what Jesus was gonna go do in a little while. They were thinking like, take up our cross. Like, are you you talking about us going to, to be executed in the worst possible way. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Or another way of thinking about that is like renouncing association with yourself as the most important person in your life to the point where you would be willing to die a shameful, painful public death. And he says, then, then you can follow me because that's where he's going. A Bible scholar, Grant Osborne, said that this metaphor Jesus gave, it's an incredibly powerful metaphor in a world where rebels and malcontents could regularly be seen dying on crosses. The disciples had to know, with all the opposition to Jesus by the officials, that this was a real possibility for them. Let's move on to verses 25 and 26. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So I have two kind of quick little side notes about those two verses before we talk about what they mean. The first is that these verses hinge on two words that Jesus says, the words for me in in verse 25. Uh, Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Um, Some of your translations might say lose their life for my sake or on account of me. Um, It's important to note that Jesus is not espousing some weird philosophy that talks about renouncing yourself or kind of disassociating from yourself or the willingness to die as a positive in and of itself. He's saying specifically in the context of being willing to do so, losing your life for the sake of Jesus. In the course of your following Jesus, if it leads you to lose your life, to deny yourself, he said, that's when you find yourself and you find your life. The second side note, the NIV uses the word soul, starting in verse 26, um, in place of the word life. So in verse 25, it says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And then in verse 26, um, it says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So that's actually life and soul is the same word in the original language. It's the Greek word psuche. If you write it in English, it looks like the word psyche, where we get our, our word psyche. Um, the idea is that it's just the person. It's the self. It's the non-physical part that makes you you and also the physical part that makes you you. It's they're united. And that's the idea. So the NIV uses two different words. I think it should just be one word, and it's the word life, or or the person, the self. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow him, you need to be ready to deny yourself and take up your cross. And as if he's answering the next question, he's like, and if if that sounds scary, uh, keep in mind that if you try to save your life now, and not do that, not deny yourself, not take up your cross, if you try to avoid that and save your life, you're actually going to lose it. 
by not following the way of Jesus, by not denying yourself as Jesus had asked us to, and thinking that you're saving your life, you will actually lose it in the end. Then he says, but if in the course of your following me, you lose it now, you will actually find it in the end. And then verse 26 kind of rounds out the application of this a little bit. Verse 25, at least in the immediate context, is for the disciples who literally could lose their lives on, on, on account of Jesus for following him. But verse 26 kind of rounds it out a bit, talking about gaining the world. And I think these two verses actually help explain each other. Um, so I think there's a parallel between the saving your life in verse 25 and the gaining the whole world in verse 26. He says, if you save your life, you're actually gonna lose it. Similarly, if you try to save your life by gaining the whole world, you will actually forfeit your life. Again, it says soul there, but it's the same concept. If you try to gain the whole world, you will actually forfeit your life. I think that phrase, gain the world, refers to um, creating comfort and safety and security um, in your own life for yourself, gathering possessions and gathering wealth. It's pretty similar to the phrase that we use today if you talk about like selling your soul for something, we kind of use that in jokes sometimes, or selling out, where someone kind of gives up part of their humanity or they give up what makes them a good person in order to gain something else, usually that status or money or something. The verse ends with a rhetorical question, what can a person give in exchange for their life? And the answer is nothing. You can't give anything in exchange for that. So in these verses, Jesus is saying that if a person makes their life all about their safety and their security and their well-being and their comfort, trying to gain the whole world, that they've missed the point and they are actually going to miss out on life that is truly life. They're gonna miss out on becoming the person that they should be. They will lose the very thing that they are seeking to grab hold of. It's like holding on to your life and the comforts in your life and the things that you want with such a tight, I mean, we call it a death grip, and then like actually squeezing it to death and you will kill the thing that you actually want. We're gonna come back to that concept at the end, spend a little bit more of our time there. We'll finish the passage here. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So there's some interesting stuff in verse 27. First is Jesus is kind of drawing our attention to two Old Testament scriptures that we'll read really quick. The first is Psalm 62, 11 and 12. It says, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. Most scholars think Jesus is basically quoting this psalm where he's doing a very direct allusion to it. Um, and then additionally, Jesus is drawing us to this um, ultra famous passage in the book of Daniel, which has been referenced a handful of times throughout the Gospel of Matthew so far, but I think it's worth looking at again. So let's look at Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Daniel has this dream. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in this dream, Daniel sees someone that looks like a human, 
Um, but he's approaching the presence of God in this cloud-type thing. Um, and then when he gets to this ancient of days, or to God, uh, he gives the Son of Man authority and glory, and it says sovereign power, and all the nations worship him, and he's given a kingdom. He's given dominion over this kingdom, which is an everlasting kingdom. So this is a vision, this part, that particular passage in Daniel 1, that gave so much comfort to the exiled people of God at that time when they were exiled when Daniel was here, and then for hundreds and hundreds of years after this, they longed for deliverance from their oppressors. They wait, were waiting for their, the kingdom to be restored and established and ruled by this son of man who would approach God and be given authority to establish this kingdom. They don't use the word Messiah here, but it is very much a messianic um, idea in its theme. Verse 27, back in Matthew 16, it begins with the word for, meaning that whatever Jesus is about to say is linked to what he has just said. So the reason that the disciples should deny themselves, be willing to give up their lives, um, be willing to not try to gain the whole world, um, is because the Son of Man is coming. He is coming and he will reward each person according to what they have done. And I think based on the context of our passage, this is not so much about like being punished for wrongdoing, but being rewarded for denying yourself. And the reward, according to Jesus, is finding life. So Jesus is saying the Son of Man is coming, the one with authority and the sovereignty to rule and to reign, and he will determine who has or has not denied themselves to follow Jesus. And those who have will be rewarded with life. And those who haven't, though they have been attempting to kind of barricade themselves with safety and comfort, will actually end up not having life. This verse and others like it, um, in the, specifically in the Gospels, can kind of be confusing because they, at face value, seem to um, contradict a lot of the rest of the New Testament theology about salvation by grace through faith, not through good works, which is very much true and what I believe, what we believe. Um, if you grew up in any kind of legalistic church tradition or maybe in a legalistic kind of family culture and then later in life you discovered the letters of Paul where he talks about being saved by grace, not according to what we've done. Then you come across these words of Jesus like this, it can kind of trigger you a little bit. You're like, wait, I, I thought that we weren't saved by what we do. Um, I thought it was just based on grace through faith. Um, so why is this reward based on behavior language in here? And, um, the truth is that our salvation is not based on what we do or don't do. It is based on we are saved and delivered from the consequences of sin by placing our faith in Jesus and pledging our allegiance to him as our king and as our Lord. In order to do that, though, in order for anyone to do that, you have to deny yourself and give up your life, to give up your vision for what you think makes for a good life Acknowledge to yourself and to God that you don't have what it takes to be good enough. That even if you tried to save your own life or to create your own good life for yourself, that you can't do it. You can't gain the world or save your own life. And there is a reward for giving up your life, for giving up the, the kind of sense of autonomy that we have to be who we want, to choose what we want to be, the reward for denying ourselves in that way is life in Jesus, life that is truly life. So yes, Jesus will reward people who do that, who choose that for their lives. Jesus then 
things specifically for the disciples. He puts a little bit of like a kind of a time frame, time frame of urgency on why they need to make sure that they have, are willing and ready to uh, lay down their lives and take up their cross. So in verse 28, he says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here, he's talking to the disciples, some who are standing here will not taste death before, or in other words, they will live to see, <laughs> will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus saying specifically to his disciples, if you wanna follow me, let go of the control of your life, your safety and your, your comfort and your status because there is coming soon a moment of judgment. And in fact, some of you will see the moment when Jesus kind of takes steps to becoming the king of the universe. There are a whole lot of theories that I sifted through in the last week on what this verse means, uh, specifically verse 28. Um, some scholars think it's referring to the actual, just the next passage in Matthew. If you look down, it's the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, some people think that's what he means by the son of man coming in his kingdom. Some think that um, it's referring to Jesus' resurrection or to his ascension back into heaven. Some think it's referring to the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church and then the subsequent like rapid expansion and multiplication and growth of the church. Others think it refers to the second coming of Jesus, um, which is to me difficult because all these disciples have tasted death and have died and Jesus still hasn't returned. Um, the explanation that makes the most sense to me is that the verse is kind of a little bit about each of those things, actually, um, that these, some of these disciples are about to see Jesus transfigured. Most of them, minus Judas, will see him resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Again, three of them will see him transfigured right before their very eyes. That he'll, his face, just in a little bit, will shine like the sun. His clothes will be bright like light. They'll have this moment of terror as they hear God the Father speaking from heaven about Jesus. This is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. Um, the, like, like I said, the rest of the disciples will see Jesus resurrected. Um, some will, see, will literally watch him ascend into the clouds, disappearing into the clouds back into heaven uh, to be seated at the right hand of God. Um, Many of them would see the radical like inbreaking of God's kingdom through the like insane and rapid growth of the church. Um, and I think that's what Jesus is telling them is that you guys are about to see the kingdom come in a new way that it hasn't yet. So he tells them, if you want to follow me, be ready to die to yourself because that's actually how you will find life that is truly life. And he said, and the time to make sure that you're ready to do that is now because this kingdom of God thing is about to move into a new phase. So there's our passage, Matthew 24 through 28. You guys doing good so far? Okay. Let's talk about this passage and us today at Valley Church. Um, the first thing I wanna do um, is acknowledge that this passage um, would hit us in a totally different way on, on a different level if we lived in a place where it wasn't physically safe to follow Jesus. There is a depth of truth and reality to these words. If you are a disciple who lives in a country where you could be physically harmed or killed for being a follower of Jesus, um, I think it's probably the most immediate and obvious application of this passage that disciples need to be willing and ready to value the kingdom of God more than their own life. And so uh, I just want to um, 
kind of different, but just before we even move on, I just want to, um, if you guys would pray with me for our brothers and sisters for whom that is reality. Um, so let's just pray. Father, we acknowledge that these words um, would have such a, a grave weight to them if we lived in a place where some of our brothers and sisters and you do, places where it's not safe, places where they fear for their lives, their well-being and their safety. And so, Father, we pray for the church around the world that is persecuted, that is under threat of punishment or harm or death for following you. We pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would give them boldness to um, obey the words of Jesus in a way that we've not had to. You give them courage and strength. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So physical danger is not a part of our experience um, here where we live and following Jesus, but this doesn't make the passage less um, applicable or important for us too, or challenging perhaps. I think there's two main things going on in our world and in our culture that this passage addresses. The first is the concept of gaining the world. Gaining the whole world is the language that Jesus uses here. And the second is the concept of finding yourself. So we'll talk about gaining the whole world first. Jesus says, what good is it to gain the whole world if in the process you lose out on the life that I'm offering you? Again, this phrase gaining the world refers to not only physically protecting your life, but gaining status and power and wealth and possessions. Jesus says, if you spend your days gaining the world with that being the pursuit of your life, you're actually going to lose it. You're going to forfeit the very thing that you want, which is the good life. So in other words, um, all of your life decisions, both the big ones and then the sum total of the small ones, they are telling a story. If I could see them on a paper or read them as a book, they're telling a story about who you are and who's in charge and what is important to you and what's important in your life. So who are you? Are you someone trying to make a name and a life for yourself or for your family? Is that what your life is about? Or are you a child of God who has died, given up your life, denied yourself, and find yourself hidden in Jesus Christ? Is that who you are? Who's in charge of your world? Are you in charge of your destiny and your happiness and your security? Or are you a member of the kingdom of God and submitted to the lordship of Jesus and what he would have you do and what he would have your life be about? Finally, what, what is most important to you? Is it safety and security, comfort, or is it living every single day of your life unto Jesus, knowing that our time is really, really short and that Jesus is coming back? Though it's not the lightest of topics, it's important to examine the, the trajectory of the decisions of your life. And to just look and to see if your life's decisions, are they leading you towards 
bigger and better standards of living, whether that's like houses, cars, travel, or technology, or your decisions moving you towards um, amassing wealth and security for yourself for the end of your life, whether that's retirement or leaving some type of, you know, uh, inheritance or estate for your kids or your grandkids. And any one of those things on their own are not wrong. Um, but the question, and I really think that only you can answer with the Spirit of God in you, uh, is have I made my life ab about those things? Is that why I exist? Is that what all the things, the decisions, the scheming and the planning and the strategy and the things that I think about are they moving me towards gaining the whole world? And you would never phrase it that way. Like, what you been doing this last month? Like, I'm just trying to gain the whole world, brother. You know, it's just what I do. You wouldn't say it that way. But if you look at the trajectory of your life and the decisions that you make, is that what your life is about? Gaining the world. Is that where your time and your energy and your thought and your money goes? Have I been attempting to save my own life, creating my own version of security and safety and comfort at the expense of my obedience to Jesus? Have I maybe inadvertently not denied myself and forgotten to take up my cross and follow Jesus? I found in my own life and in the people that I know when we've talked about this passage um, and others like it, that there are generally two kinds of responses when I'm saying the kinds of things I'm saying to you. Some people respond in like an extreme and then they, they kind of ask all sorts of like crazy questions like should I like, what should I do pastor? Like should I give up literally everything? Should I sell everything that I have? Should I stop saving for retirement? Should I never buy a bigger house? Should we downsize? Should I never buy a nicer car? Should I move to Africa and be a missionary? Things like that. I would imagine that some of you maybe had some of those, maybe not those exact things, but something like that going through your mind where you think like, what should I do? Like, what, what in my life am I doing that I shouldn't be doing? Um, maybe on the extreme. On the other end uh, is I know people, myself, I'm probably more tempted to think this way, that I will never actually seriously think deeply about this passage in my life. I might try to just kind of like write it off altogether or assume this like concept of gaining the world that's like well that's that's about other people who like actually have money and a lot of it like that's for like millionaires and billionaires like I'm I'm not one of them just an average guy trying to live my life uh, but I think the right response is probably somewhere in the middle of those nothing crazy but also maybe not ignoring it and God might lead you to do something crazy um, but we certainly don't want to ignore what Jesus is saying and the, and the warning that he is giving us. Um, I don't know that Jesus will ask you to upend your life, do something crazy, but I do think um, that what we've read should reorient your mind and your heart about something. Some, maybe it's something big in your life, maybe it's something small. It should probably, the words of the, on the page and the spirit of God working in you should probably do something. And so if you're just like, ah, I'd be careful of that attitude. I bet God wants to do something. Maybe it's small, maybe not, maybe it's big, but it should do something. All of us need that kind of reorientation regularly. And so I wanna ask you, don't quiet the voice of God in this moment or quench what the Spirit might be trying to say to you as I'm teaching the Bible. So I'm gonna read two passages as I, we, we stop talking about gaining the world. Um, 
two passages. Um, the first is Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11. This is a king who had everything. Literally anything that you could think of, money, power, status, wealth, anything, he had it all. And this book is about how it, it didn't deliver. Ecclesiastes 2.10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Just gonna let that sit for a second. Finally, First uh, Timothy six, verse seventeen. Command those who are rich in this present world, which I think, considering the globe, means every single one of us in this room. Command those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That passage, in my mind, explains the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. It's like a parallel passage that is just very, very similar. Um, the second kind of pulse of our world, our culture, is the concept of finding yourself. This is a very prevalent philosophy, life process today. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, finding yourself. Um, Disney calls it being true to your heart, um, following your heart no matter what your dad thinks. And philosophy or psychology um, calls it self-actualization or self-realization. The idea is that there is an existence somewhere, a true you, a version of you that you could and should become, that you owe it to the world and you owe it to yourself to find that version of yourself, to find who you are supposed to be, to do whatever it takes to become that better version of yourself. Uh, for some reason, what I, when I think of the concept of finding yourself, I hear I like in my mind the, the breakup phrase. Like if you're trying to end a relationship, and you're like, I just need to go find myself, and really you're just like, I just don't wanna date you anymore. Um, someone feels like they've lost who they are. They don't like who they've become, so they need to end that relationship or stop doing something, change something in their life so that they can find out who they are and take hold of their best life, their best self. I think when the world says that, finding yourself, I think it is our modern version of not denying yourself, of trying to gain the world. It's this poisonous belief that the chief end of your life, the best thing that you could do is to find out what makes you happy and to do it. I don't want you to be unhappy. I think Jesus does want you to be happy, but that is not the end goal of your life. 
The tricky part, Jesus does want you to be happy and fulfilled. He doesn't want you to lose your personality or to lose who you're supposed to be. But the point of this, Matthew 16, Jesus is the one who's supposed to give you that, to tell you and show you who you are supposed to be. It's not the journey, this journey that you have to go on by yourself to find out who you're supposed to be. It's something that happens counterintuitively when you lay down yourself, when you deny yourself and this illusion of autonomy and control that we have in our lives and we say, I can't do this on my own. Jesus, tell me who I'm supposed to be. Give me this life that you speak of. So if you want to find yourself, you have to die. And then you can be given life that is truly life. You can become the best version of you, the version that God had in mind when he was stitching you together in your mother's womb. And it is the version that will become more like Jesus. Dying to Jesus, dying to yourself doesn't make a person like disassociated or like a shell of who they were supposed to be. It actually results in us becoming exactly who God made us to be. All the like quirks of your personality and all, everything makes us who we are supposed to be. And so the question before us right now is, are you right now currently making decisions, living with habits and striving towards goals that involve gaining the world or finding yourself outside of the path that Jesus has outlined for you? Are you trying to shortcut the self-denial and the death that Jesus requires of us to follow him? So would you take a moment and just think on this? Uh, would you allow the Spirit of God to guide you and to teach you and to correct you and to comfort you as you think about this? And I would remind you that even if there is correction that has to come from the Spirit in this moment. Um, it comes from a perfect, loving, good Father who doesn't do it in a way to make you feel guilty or bad, but he does it in a way to bring you back into a beautiful, like, whole relationship with him. And so if you hear a voice that's bringing shame and guilt, it actually might not be the Lord. Um, so yeah, just take a moment and ask if there's something God's doing in you right now. Father, we pray for the um, compassionate and wise and loving voice of you, our Father, to be so clear in our minds right now. Would you help us to be quiet enough, to slow down enough, to listen to you? Your word says that your sheep know the sound of your voice that we can hear you and we can know that it's you because we are part of your flock and we know your voice. And so when we read things like this that are, that are challenging, that are sharp, like scripture can be, God, we trust that you're not trying to wound us or make us feel terrible, but you're trying to actually lift us up and to heal us and to make us whole and to bring us back to you. 
And so whatever you're doing in the minds and the hearts of this church right now, I say thank you. And would you keep doing that? Would you work in us and teach us and guide us and strengthen us and encourage us? In Jesus' name, amen.